Well, um, we are obviously taking another pass at 1 Samuel 28 this morning, and I was initially thinking that this would be our last pass through the chapter. However, it won't be. Um, there's just so much. There's just so much life-giving truth here. You know, it's it's hard to go fast when the when when the, when the truth is so rich. So so we're not going to finish it up this week. This week we're going to focus on David's exaltation by Achish in verses one and two. That'll be our focus for today. Next week we'll focus on Saul's demise in the rest of the chapter. So we have rise and then demise is what's going on here. And and last time you remember we we looked at this passage last week. Although. In, in my defense of still doing two more sermons, you, you might remember that last time we didn't actually do a proper exposition of 1 Samuel 28. Instead, what we did is we took our time uh, to put some biblical parameters around the strangeness that's represented in this chapter. And, and in that, we talked specifically about some elements related to Saul and his visit to, to a medium, to, this, uh, to the spiritist. Where, where the spirit of Samuel is then called up from the dead and they have this interchange. Uh, it's just such a, such a strange section. So, so it was good to take some time last week and just think biblically about what's going on there. Um, when we come to the Bible, especially when we come to passages with more uh, difficult parts like this one has, we always want to first apply ourselves to the principle of interpreting Scripture with Scripture. And so we, we gave ourselves some time to do that last week. Uh, in relationship to Saul's visit to this medium of Endor, we, we looked at what the Bible has to say about that practice in general and, and then uh, how, how we can be helped by Scripture to understand the fact that Samuel's spirit appears and all of these kinds of things. There's oddities. Um, but but as, we, as we're informed in our understanding of these things, even from other passages in the Bible that shed some light on it, that we do see that Scripture is sufficient to help us make sense of things as far as we need to, uh, knowing, of course, that God's purposes and His revelation is not ultimately to satisfy every single corner or aspect of our curiosity, uh, but ultimately give us the persevering truth that we need. Um, so we, we did take some time to work through that last week. I won't say anything else about, about those uh, kind of strange elements this week. Instead, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to begin approaching this passage in a more, more normal expository manner, um, having now worked through some of those distracting details. So we can give ourselves to the main truth that's here. And the main truth that's here for us in, in the totality of chapter 28 doesn't really center on the strangeness of Saul's encounter with this medium of Endor, uh, but instead the main thing that's here for us to focus on is, is the beginning, really, of the climax of our narrative so far. Um, so, so far in these chapters of Samuel, we've been focusing on David and Saul. David is the king who's been anointed by God. He's the man after God's own heart. Saul, who started out seeming very kingish and was the people's choice for king, uh, he's ultimately now been rejected by God because of his uh, disobedience to the word of God. Uh, we know all that tension is going on. And, and while Saul has been uh, hunting David, seeing David as a threat to his throne now, and while David's been surviving in the wilderness, and, and, and even now as David has taken refuge with the Philistine king Achish, in all of this there have been some pretty grim times for David. Uh, just as we've read through the narrative, we do have to wonder if, if David's really going to realize the promised purposes of God. Saul gets very close to killing David on more than one occasion. Uh, the throne of Israel, uh, which God has promised to David, uh, seems so far from him as he's there in, in the cave of Adullam or as he's there in those uh, foreign cities and enemy territory in, in Achish's land. Uh, so we have to wonder what's going to become of David. That's been the narrative tension so far. Uh, but from this chapter on, things do take a turn. And here we begin the section of, of 1 Samuel 
where David is, is on the rise and Saul is very, very much, very evidently on the decline. Um, so this rise of David and the decline of Saul is set up in the form of, of two contrasting sections now as the book of 1 Samuel comes to a close. This, this is the main thing that the rest of Samuel is going to address, the rest of 1 Samuel. Um, and, and we have the first section of that contrasting rise and decline in our chapter here in chapter 28. And then actually, and just in case you're, you're one who likes to read ahead, in chapter 29 through chapter 31, we have the second big contrast between David's rise and Saul's decline there in, in, the, in those chapters, which, which ultimately ends in this very great victory for David and, and ultimately then ends in, the, in death for Saul. So we have that set up again as, as 1 Samuel comes to a close. Um, but, it, but as we set in on these sections, which, which parallel David's rise and Saul's decline, uh, the fact that the narrator has set up this element of, of parallel contrast helps to frame our understanding of, of a main instructional point of these chapters, uh, which, is, which is centered on the fact that, that there are really two ways things can go. Now, we know that from, from biblical wisdom literature is often talking about the way that leads to death and the way that leads to life. We know Jesus speaks about that in Matthew chapter 7. There's a narrow way which leads to life, a broad way which leads to destruction. There are ultimately two ways that the Bible puts forward before us. Uh, there's the way of, of life for the one who's trusting in the living God and His promises. There's the way of destruction uh, that's there for the one who's set against God's life-giving word. We have these two roads. And as we come to our studies, we'll see that, that we're ultimately provided here with truth that helps us think about those two ways well. That we, we need the clarity that comes from this. There's encouraging clarity that will come from David's own section here today. As we know, David is on the rise. David is on the path of life. And then next week, as we look at Saul's decline here, we actually find helpful truth there. Because like we've said on more than one occasion as we've studied Saul's life, there is good instruction that comes from bad examples. So we can actually be helped by watch, watching what it looks like for Saul to go down this, this path of destruction and be, and be warned off of that ourselves by the truth. So there's good clarity that's here for us. Um, again, not, not least of all what we're going to think about today. There's, there's main kinds of stuff for us, and we need the main kinds of stuff uh, with regard to gospel truth if we're going to stay on the, on the main road. Uh, John Bunyan who you know wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He also wrote another little book entitled The Heavenly Footman. If you've ever seen that, footman is, is an old English way of speaking about a runner. Uh, so, so it's a book about, about perseverance in the faith, the one who's headed towards heaven like a runner who's headed towards their, their final goal. That's Bunyan's theme of the book. And, and in that book, Bunyan uh, is, is focused on our journey really down this road of faith and what it looks like to be persevering in that way. But as he speaks about that, he references what he refers to as painted bypaths. Painted bypaths. And those, and those painted bypaths, he says, are those, are those roads which, which might have the appearance of gospel color in a certain way, but ultimately they prove to be tracks that run over to this path of destruction, the alternate path. He calls them the painted bypass, the devil's painted roads, he calls them. So, so there are these alternative roads that we can come across as we're going down the journey of faith following Jesus. And, and these uh, bypaths may have the, the, uh, the, the, the quality of, of looking proper to a certain degree. They may, they may look right. They may even look attractive. And so Bunyan speaks about maybe just a little adjustment to the gospel over here on this path or, or maybe an addition to the understanding of the gospel. We'll just add a little something in over here on this path. Maybe some misplaced morality. 
you know, like you have to add your good works or something like that. That's a, that's a bypath. He talks about a little extra license for, for disregarding God's command. That's a, a painted bypath. All these different roads that can be painted with a certain gospel shade, but ultimately prove to be going down the path of destruction, going over to the path of destruction. And his point in all of that is to avoid these painted bypaths, we have to keep our eyes fixed on the main road and on Christ. We have to have a, a sure understanding of what it means to know the reality of the gospel and what it looks like to really follow Jesus. Uh, so, so Bunyan says, as he sums these things up in his old English style, he says, take heed, thou dost not turn into those lanes which lead out of the way, there are crooked paths. You've got to watch for those, he says. And we know about those paths, they're around us. Things, things that might distract or distort from a true understanding of what it means to ultimately trust in the Lord Jesus. And, and so we need these kinds of passages, like what we'll look at today, uh, because they keep us oriented on the main road. It was C.S. Lewis who said uh, that as Christian believers, oftentimes we need to be reminded more than we need to be instructed. In other words, we need to constantly be brought back to main truth. And that's, and that's what uh, we're going to be able to do from these, from these first two verses today as we focus on David and his ultimate, ultimately his journey on the path of life and how that informs our understanding uh, climactically of the good news about Jesus. And, and so what we're going to do today is we're going to uh, take a moment and we'll, we'll get a sense of what's going on here in this interaction between David and King Achish of Gath. We'll do that and then from there we're going to go on and just make two points of application. So that's how we're going to frame our study of verses 1 and 2 today. Uh, we'll get a sense of what's going on first of all and then, and then we'll make two points of application. So uh, first of all, we'll, we'll get a sense of what's going on here. In fact, why don't I just read the first two verses again, uh, just so it's fresh in our minds. We have here, at that time, the Philistines gathered their military units into one army to fight against Israel. Now, just part of what that reflects is the fact that is, uh, Philistine city, there were five main Philistine cities, kind of in a sense isolated from the other. So gathering together means that the armies of those five cities are coming together to fight against Israel. So Achish, who's the king of Gath, one of those main five cities, says to David, you know, of course, you and your men must march out in the army with me. David replied to Achish, good, you will find out what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, very well, I will appoint you as my permanent bodyguard. Right. So, so as, as we look at this text, we see that this passage obviously begins with the Philistines preparing for war against Israel. Um, in the last chapter, David had gone into the Philistine territories. He, he'd gone to Achish, king of Gath. You remember to find refuge from, from Saul's constant pursuit of him. Uh, he realized that Saul's never going to give up pursuing him, even though Saul had said what he said in the chapter before about being foolish to pursue David. Uh, David still knew Saul's not going to quit, and Saul didn't quit until, uh, until David went into this, to this land of the Philistines. So, so David goes to Gath, one of these five major cities. Achish is the king. He finds refuge from Saul, which actually went on for some time. We were told that David was, was in that territory for a year and four months. Um, and Saul didn't pursue David behind enemy lines during that time. Uh, but also during that time, David was, was playing a bit of a deceptive game. Because while he was in Philistine territory, he would lead his men out and conduct these raids on groups who were historical enemies of Israel. Uh, so David would go out and do that. And then he would bring back a share of the spoil to King Achish, 
which, which no doubt helped to reflect some of their agreement to let David live in the land. So he's, in a sense, paying lease to, to King Achish for being there. And as David did that, he would also lead King Achish to believe that he was raiding his own people instead of Israel's enemies. Uh, David was deceiving Achish significantly during, during that time, so much so that by the end of chapter 27, Achish has reached this conclusion. Listen to the last line of chapter 27. It reads, so Achish trusted David, thinking, since he has made himself repulsive to his people Israel, he will be my servant forever. But of course, we know, as the readers, we know that David's been lying. That David hasn't really been raiding his own people. David has been raiding the enemies of Israel. We know that. Achish doesn't know that, though. So now, as chapter 28 begins, the Philistines are gathering together to mount an attack on Israel, and Achish says to David, and, and there is, uh, there's, there's, a, there's an emphatic statement reflected here in the Hebrew grammar. Achish is emphatic about this. He says, make no mistake about it. You, David, you and your men are fighting on my side as we go out against Israel. This is what's going to happen. And David's response is interesting. He says to Achish in verse 2, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. Now, now, now we have to wonder what in the world does that mean? Does that mean that David is, is, is implying to Achish that he's going to see how good David is in battle fighting on Achish's side? Or does David mean that Achish is going to get a taste of David's battle skills as he turns on Achish in the midst of this battle uh, that's going to be waged against, against the Israelites? Um, now, now, we know as the readers, we know David is, is faithful still to his, to his mandate, his anointing as, as Israel's anointed king. We know that David is faithful to that. But Achish, he interprets David's vague manner of speaking in the opposite way. Achish thinks David will show his battle prowess uh, by fighting for, for the Philistines and for Gath, which, which, of course, David intends for him to think. Otherwise, he'd be, he'd be in a lot of trouble. So Achish is really glad to have David along. David's going to be fighting on Gath's team. It's going to make Achish's city look really good because we know David and his men are, are, are extremely effective on the battlefield. This is going to be great for Achish. Achish is glad to have David with him. And Achish even responds to David's statement here, and he says, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. My bodyguard for life. In other words, Achish so trusts David here that to translate the Hebrew phraseology literally here, Achish says, I will make you the keeper of my head for life. Which, as readers of 1 Samuel, we have to see the irony in that statement because back in chapter 17, we've already been told that David kept another head from a Philistine from Gath. But it wasn't quite what Achish had in mind here. It was Goliath's head that David took after he chopped it off. Now Achish, king of Gath, he tells David he'll be the keeper of his head. So, so there's some irony in this. Uh, and, and then in the masterful craftsman of, of Hebrew narrative, there's this scene change where we shift now to Saul, and we have to wait until chapter 29 to see what happens next. So, so there's some suspense that's built up here. What's going to happen? David with the Philistines set against the people of Israel. What's going to happen? But we have to wait until chapter 29 to find out. It's a, it's a, it's a series finale here. It's a, it's a, a cliffhanger. Um, but, but just here, as we think about all of this, there are a couple things worth meditating on as we consider the point of this truth that's here for us in verses 1 and 2. So, so here, here are our two points of application, and we'll just, we'll just work through this. Point number one is, is that in this interaction between Achish and David, we ultimately have an extraordinary glimpse of the gospel. We're actually given an extraordinary glimpse here of gospel truth. 
Uh, remember, from this point on in 1 Samuel, we're, we're dealing with this contrast between the path of life and the path of destruction. You know, the rise of David, the fall of, of Saul. And, and as things start here, we're given uh, really this kind of flicker of what's ultimately true in the good news about Jesus, which, which reflects the ultimate path of life, of course, and, and, it's, and it's this. There's David in the presence of the enemy. Right? He's there with Achish, the enemy of Israel. There's David in the presence of the enemy being exalted to what is arguably the highest military position, if not in the land of the Philistines, at least in the, in the city of Gath, the main city of Gath. David is the one now charged with the ultimate safety of Achish the king. High, highest position there could possibly be. There's no missing the fact that for all that's been going on here in David's life, for all the wilderness wanderings and pressures and angst and dangers, right here, David is being exalted. And it's not just that David is being exalted to a high position, but this is what we have to see. He's being exalted to a high position of trust by those who are his natural-born enemies. Which brings us to notice what we are constantly called to notice about David's life. We talk about this with regularity. David's life serves as a kind of shadow pointing forward to a much greater substance because David the king after God's own heart points forward ultimately to climactic truths about the final and better king Jesus. And we see that here. David, God's choice king, is exalted as the protector of his natural born enemy. And isn't that, if we put ourselves in, in, the, in the context of the whole gospel story, isn't that right at the center of the good news about what's true for us in King Jesus? Right, right down the line, basic good news about Jesus, no painted bypaths. The good news about Jesus Christ, God's climactic king, is that while we are natural-born enemies of God, lost in our sin, as Romans 5 makes clear, while we're enemies of God, committed to our rebellion against God, Jesus comes and proves to be the one who is ultimately our protector. He's the one who is ultimately the keeper of our head. Right? While we were still sinners, enemies of God, Jesus gave his life for us. And, and while this first Samuel figure is just that, it's a figure, it's a shadow, it's just a glimmer, it does give us an indicator of that central truth. God's choice king will be exalted by natural-born enemies as the protector of their lives. Now, Achish's trust in David is not, is not well-founded. And it's not well-founded because David has been deceptive. And we're actually going to talk about that deception next. But, but this is a picture here that is important for us to see. D David does, in a sense, become the protector of his enemy. And here's where things start to connect as we, as we pan out and get the broader sense of, of, of the narrative and what's, what's going to go on here. As, as time passes... In the history of Israel and their relationship to Gath and, and the Philistines, as time goes on, we find this extraordinary development in that as David is established as king, as king of Israel, Gath is actually brought under his dominion. You can read, it's the only Philistine town that is. It's brought under his dominion. You can read about that in 1 Chronicles 18. So Achish's royal city is brought in as a city under David's care. There's this unique relationship that Israel ends up having with Gath when David is the king. And not just, not just that, but later on, when David moves the ark of God for, for a period of time, for three months, um, he, as he moves the ark, which is the symbol of God's presence and revelation and power among his people, um, when David moves that ark for a period of three months, he leaves it in the care of Obed-Edom of Gath. And while it's there, the Lord blesses Obed-Edom's house in Gath. 
So you have the, the presence of God, the blessing of God. That's there in 2 Samuel 6. A man from Gath is blessed by the presence of the Lord. And not only that, but later when David is on the run again, this time from his son Absalom, who's out to kill him, uh, 600 men from Gath are listed as part of David's loyal group of followers. So, so, so there's this amazing development, but, but we have the beginnings of that here. God's choice king ultimately gathers in and protects those who are otherwise his enemies. This is what God, God's king does. And, and so a section like this comes to us, and, and it startles us with what, with what seems to be something so counter to all logic at first. Achish, king of Gath, entrusting his life to David. The, the, the one who's a natural enemy of God's king is entrusting his personal life to the protection of God's king. It seems so counter to all that makes sense. But as strange as it seems, it gives us a glimpse of, of what, what could we call the, the, the scandalous mercy of the gospel. Jesus is the protector of those who are by nature his enemies. And then that central truth is something that we must always keep in the forefront of our minds. Right? Because there are days where we might slip into thinking that we're not good enough to be saved. We're not the right kind of person to be saved. We're probably not the sort of person who's really called to participate in the gospel. But what we see is that ultimately throughout the scripture, the only prerequisite in the Bible to make us worthy of the gospel is our complete unworthiness before God, our complete contrariness before God. That's what Paul says in Ephesians, by nature we're children of his wrath. In Romans, what does Paul say? We're enemies of God while we were his enemies. All this language about our farness from God, nature, we're enemies of God. But as we think about this, this is a great encouragement to us because this truth encourages us personally. Our need for Christ is ultimately the foundation of our coming to Christ, not our goodness to be saved or anything of that nature. And again, this just keeps us right down the line in terms of the main thing. What did Achish do to deserve David's protection? Nothing. In fact, the whole scene is kind of a mess except that David is the king of God's people and Achish is the enemy, and there's the king ultimately gathering, gathering in Achish's city under his own protection. So it's an, it's an extraordinary truth. And this, this truth also encourages us evangelistically because there are those who we know and love and, and who might seem so set against God, so opposed to God and His way, so determined to reject realities about God. But from a text like this, we're brought to be renewed in the fact that it is the enemies of God who end up being brought under the salvation protection of God's King. It is exactly those people. So, so maybe there's somebody who, who you've been tempted to give, give up on praying for. We have those, those people in our life where we just wonder, maybe they're just too far gone. Someone you've been tempted to give up on in terms of speaking to them about Jesus, but we never give up. Because the kingdom of Jesus is ultimately only made up of those who were once enemies, but are now reconciled children through God's king. We're all Gathites, if you like, brought into the kingdom of God by God's, by God's better king. So in David's situation here, we're given, a, we're, we're, we're given a glimpse of the gospel in that way. It's, it's awkward, it's strange how David enters into this relationship of protection with the king of Gath. And then even as we go on, this special relationship with Gath that continues through the narrative, we think this is so odd. What is, what is going on with this? Why is this here? David will still war against the Philistines, all of these things, but Gath is brought in. People from Gath are gathering with David. What, what, what is going on with that? Well, this is the king who protects uh, those who are by nature enemies. So there's that. That's application point one. Application point two is this. 
because here, here in, this, in this passage, we're not just given a glimpse of, of, of the beginnings of, of what it means to understand the gospel, that, uh, that the good news about Jesus is, is, is extended to those who are enemies of God. We're not just given that picture, but we're also given encouragement for our perseverance as we go along for a while on the gospel path. Okay? So, so we come back to what we were saying initially about there being two ways, these, these two paths, things like Jesus makes clear in his own teaching in Matthew 7. You know, there's the narrow way that leads to life. There's the broad road that leads to destruction. There are always the, the two ways. Uh, John Oxenham has that poem where, he, where he, he makes the point that to every man there opens a highway and a low. There are the, there are the two paths. And in this chapter, we see David on the path of exaltation. David is beginning to experience the fulfillment of what God has promised to him. First, exalted among the Gentiles, if you like. Right? But David's on the rise. It's been a long road, but he's on the rise. Saul's on the path of death. And when we think about these two ways, the way of, the way of life and then the way of destruction as they relate to our trusting, when we think about these two ways, we can often find ourselves becoming very aware of our own frailty and our own sin, uh, not just in our first coming to Jesus, but we can feel our own frailty very acutely as we go along, maybe even uh, after we're a number of miles down the path of following Jesus. We can feel our weakness. We can feel our sin. And as we get further down the path, if we're, if we're reflective, we can sometimes find ourselves thinking that while we might have embraced the gospel initially, we, we heard Jesus call to us in our lostness, we took comfort in the fact that he gives us the forgiveness that we need, the reconciliation, all of those kinds of things, but now time has gone by and we have this feeling sense that, that we don't quite make the standard. Am, am I really living like a person who's on the path of life? Am I really living like a true Christian would live? Am I really living out a persevering faith? Maybe you've, you've wondered that. Right, probably at times we all face that question as, as we go along in the life of faith. I came to Jesus, I'm trusting in Him, but as time goes on, I'm starting to wonder. Maybe, maybe I'm actually more solace than I thought. My faith is flimsy. You relate to that? Right, flimsy faith. Right? Maybe I've had seasons of, of, of persevering uh, obedience, but then I get tangled up in sin in some pretty big ways. In fact, in fact, maybe I've I've just tumbled uh, so often. I've even looked for opportunities to uh, to sin and embrace that. And and while I ultimately hate that, I find myself doing it. I'm I'm conscious of my conscious willingness to go contrary to God's way at times. Even as I'm even as I'm saying I'm I'm walking in the narrow way. I'm trusting in Jesus. Uh, and while I'm on that path of of life, while I want to be, sometimes I wonder maybe I'm actually going down the path of destruction. I mean, look at this turmoil that's going on in my heart. Look at these doubts. Look at these sins. Look at these kinds of things. And, th and this is where this is where David's character becomes such an extraordinary help to us in this passage. Because right here, David is being exalted. David, David is being lifted up. In the next section of the narrative, David will ultimately be very victorious. And we see all that combined with the fact that David is not altogether a bastion of righteousness. David is very much in the midst of deceiving Achish right now, and he's been lying to Achish in the last chapter. He's making Achish think he'll fight against Israel when David most surely will not. To put it in plainest terms possible, David is out and out violating commandment number nine. Do not give false testimony. That is what David is doing. He is purposefully deceiving Achish and lying to him. And yet, what is happening? What's happening in David's life? The Lord is fulfilling His promise to David. 
David's on the rise. He's, he's on the path of realizing the fulfillment of God's purpose for him, God's promises to him. And while ultimately there is no excusing disobedience in our lives of faith in any way, and that's why we'll see that David ends up being, being quite the chief repenter as time goes on. David becomes the, the, the most exemplary repenter in the course of his life. Psalm 51 makes that clear and in other places. Uh, but, but we need to hear this and, and hear this very well, that there's never any excusing of sin. Never. Sin is never okay. With that in mind, we also need to see that for the one who's ultimately putting their trust in the living God, that path of life, the way toward uh, forward purpose, the way looking forward to the promise-fulfilling work of God, the, the life-giving climax of God's purposes, that path of life is not derailed by our stumbles into sin. God, God doesn't stop being the promise keeper. David's on the rise, though David is deceiving right now. Right now, he's a commandment breaker. The path of life for the man or the woman or the boy or the girl who's trusting in the Lord, the path of life is not fundamentally based on our performance, but it's based on God's promise. Which is so central to our understanding of what persevering looks like. We keep going in the faith, faltering no doubt at times. I mean, it's no accident. It's not just a matter of habit or a nod to church history or something like that, that we all confess our sins out loud in church every Sunday. We, we falter, we sin, we do what God's word prohibits, uh, offending no one more than him, we sin. But, but we are comforted by the truth of Jesus' sufficient, saving, and sustaining work. So we understand that going forward in the faith on the path of life remains a journey not sourced in my performance, but sourced in God's commitment to his saving promise, grounded in his grace to keep me till the end. When I falter, I repent. When I have trouble with trust, I confess my trouble with trusting. But in Christ, though we may falter, we must understand that going forward is a matter of reliance on the kindness and persevering strength of the Lord, not my faith performance metrics from last week or last year or whatever it may be. In this chapter, David is simultaneously being exalted while he is deceptive. <laughs> and, that, and, that's, and that's not making disobedience to God remotely okay. But it does show us how God's purposes and grace for us are not dependent on our perfection. And, and I just wonder if, if recently that's something that, that maybe you've struggled with. Again, we all do in the Christian life from time to time, no doubt. We start thinking to ourselves, you know, I, ha I haven't got it right enough. I've been in this Christian life too long to have these struggles build up like they are. I must not really be on the path of following Christ. We can run that loop in our minds, but when that loop runs, we can be encouraged by this. We can be renewed by this. In Christ, God's purposes in affecting His promises in your life are bigger and more powerful than your ability to send yourself away from His love, which is glory which is the good news about, uh, about Jesus. This is why Paul has to get to that point in his letter to the Romans. You remember when he's unpacking the extraordinary truth of the gospel? He gets to that point in Romans chapter 6 where he finally has to ask that rhetorical question, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? Right? And then he says, no, 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 count yourself dead to sin. Put sin to death. Go in the way of righteousness like Christ gave you resurrection life to do. Paul says that. But, but, but you see, this is the thing about the gospel. God's grace is so big, Paul has to address that natural question that arises. Shall I just not care about sinning then because of abounding grace? 
Nothing can keep me from God's saving purposes for me. God's grace in Christ is so big. We have to address that question. And if we don't have to address that question, it does speak to the fact we've never really understood the gospel. Paul expects us to have such a high view of Christ, to understand that sin is so covered, to understand that Christ's work is so sufficient on the cross as he atones for our sin, the promised ministry of God in keeping us until the end is so absolutely sure Paul has to address the question that naturally arises. So does it mean that sin's okay then? Because there's nothing that can keep me from being saved if God has set his love upon me. So does that mean sin is okay? No, no, no. No, put sin to death. We've been saved to live a righteous life. Jason talked about it in our confession this morning. To live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. But if we don't ever get to that question, we don't ever understand the bigness of what Christ has done for us. And so, and so we can come back to this time and time again in our own lives. There are those dark days. There are those dark days that can start to affect us. But in those dark days, we never want to forget the size of grace for us in our lives. I mean, look at David here. And we've seen this a few times now with David. My goodness, as the narrative goes forward, we're going to see this in some huge ways with David. David is a man who sins. David is a man after God's own heart, but he's a man with a rotten heart at times. He's a man who goes in ways that are so contrary to God that, that they're hard to speak about. They're even going to be hard narratives to read publicly. David will go so contrary to God. But at the same time, God has chosen him as his king. God has chosen us as his people. God has chosen you as his child. And when God sets his saving love upon you, there is nothing you can ultimately do to remove yourself from that love. So what that means is the purposes of God in Christ for you will stand come what may. And in that, in that position, we deal with that tension. Shall I, shall I just keep on sinning then? To which the answer is no. And why is the answer no to that? Why will the answer be no to that for David? Well, because David is a man after God's own heart. For us, we have had hearts made new in the way of Christ, renewed in the way of Christ. And so what is our deepest desire? Our deepest desire is not to get away with those things that estrange us from the one who has loved us so well. Our deepest desire is to go in the ways that reflect the new life that he's purchased for us. And so as we put those things together in our mind, we're constantly renewed and we're not renewed in our path of righteousness saying, oh, I just hope I can make it. I just hope I can make it. I just hope I can make it. Renewed in that path of righteousness saying, look at what Christ has secured for me. And from that posture of security, we go forward in a healthy, persevering way. It's reflected, it's a concept that we understand even from our own, uh, from our own uh, concept of family life and things of that nature, don't we? The, the, the children that do well are not children who are found in a home where love is performance-based. I'll love you, my son, if you do the things that I'm telling you to do. And if you don't love me, I'm going to turn my back. Or if you don't obey me, if you don't do what I want, I'm going to turn my back on you and not, and not engage with you in a loving way. How does that go? That's not motivating uh, for the child to obey. Right? But what, how, what is motivating for a child to obey? What's motivating is a loving parent who's engaging with them and not separating themselves uh, fr from them. And this is, the, this is the way God has acted toward us. What's motivating for us is recognizing that there is nothing we can ever do to make God stop loving us. There's nothing. And in light of that reality, what do we want to do? Oh, that's kind of dull. I'm not, I'm not really interested in, in that kind of love. No, no. What do we want to do knowing that kind of love? Well, we want to walk in the way that that love calls us to because that is the proved way of life. He's proved his love for us in saving us. And what more could we do than walk that path of life that he's laid out before us? And so here we have this, this strange situation 
Strange situation with David. What, what is going on here? David is being exalted while he's being disobedient. And through the scriptures, the Lord says to us, take heart, because I'm doing the same with you. I'm doing the same with you. And there's nothing that's going to stop me from keeping you in my care until the very end. And so the old, the old hymn puts it this way. It says, I'll trust in thee each day and hour as, though, as through this sinful world I go. I'll lean upon thine arm of power and then defeat I never shall know. And then defeat I never shall know. So, so we take encouragement from these verses this morning. They point us forward to the king who protects his enemies. Right? We, we actually recognize the reality of that in our own life. We who by nature are children of wrath. By nature, we're set against God in our sin. What has God done for us? He's protected us through the better king. He's brought us in through Christ. We're now his children. Right? We serve the Lord who protects us, from, uh, who comes and protects us even though we're born as enemies. And then, at the same time, we're reminded that in the end, as we go along, as we continue to persevere, it's all of grace. And the path of life will be our path, not because of our perfection, but because the Lord is faithful to His promise to preserve us. And that's good news. We need that good news, and that's basic good news. That's right down the center of what it means to trust in Jesus. He saved me, and He will keep me. He saved, no painted bypass. He saved me and he will keep me. And that's the message we take out to others. He will save you and he will keep you if you trust in him. He will save you and he will keep you if you trust in him. That's the good news around the potency of the ultimate king that God has set over us reigning well. And so we're thankful to God for his word and the truth of the gospel, which leaves us comforted even though we may feel our own frailty. Let's pray together. So, Father, we pray we would be renewed in your truth. Renew us in the gospel. Uh, it is the good news about Jesus. There's nothing better. Uh, we want to know him. We want to follow him. We love him. We rely upon him. We trust in him. There is, there is nothing we could ever do to separate ourselves from your love for us in Christ, and we praise you for that. Uh, please renew us in this comforting truth this morning. We ask it in Christ's strong name. Amen.